Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Credit Site Sector Interview Podcast. I'm your host today, Zach Griffiths, and joining me is the head of U.S. Financials Research, Jesse Rosenthal. Jesse, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Zach. Happy to be on. All right. So we've been starting with an icebreaker to get the ball rolling. If you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic, credit market, or sector-specific data for 2023, what would it be and why? Well, I presume the the easy answer is where does Fed funds end up the year? But that's obviously too cute by half. I think from my perspective, it's really, it's one economic data point or macro data point. It's probably where consumer credit ends up. I think, you know, we're, we're firmly in the sort of normalization camp in terms of what we're seeing on the consumer side of things, but it has such a direct impact on this very odd cycle in terms of Fed fighting inflation, continued strong nominal spending in the face of that. When does the cycle end? And so I think, you know, cracks on the consumer side is something that we're looking for. Again, I think less from a banking system specific risk and more as a early leading indication of what's happening on the macro side. Definitely. And kind of looking through earnings, I know we're still going through Q4 earnings at this time, but what are, what's your sense of the trends up to this point? I know you mentioned this is probably a year of normalization, but how does kind of the end of year 2022 data look and how is that impacting your outlook for 2023? Yeah, I mean, the the banks wrapped up uh, earnings season several weeks ago. I think the the read there and the read from some industry conferences that we had a couple weeks ago is that the U.S. economy still seems pretty strong. You know, I do think there's a little bit of widening disparity between what we're seeing on the commercial side and the consumer side in terms of, you know, confidence, consumer confidence versus business confidence. And the way that that's really manifesting is this year, and we started to see signs of it at the end of 2022, uh, but we've seen a pretty dramatic slowdown in commercial lending growth. You know, credit card re- lending growth is coming off a little bit, but I think that's also just kind of tied with a little bit cooler uh, nominal PCE type trends. But it's the commercial that really jumps out to us. We're we're kind of back to low single digit annual growth rates now. And 2022 was plus 15 percent on the full year. So so that's something that we're paying attention to. We had flagged last year. There are some benign explanations for the slowdown in commercial lending. Um, you know, there was a really nice tailwind in 2022 just from re-inventory needs that supply chain kinks started to get working out so you started to see greater uptick on uh, revolver utilization rates so some some of this slowdown is definitely just from that anniversary effect and the and the reduction of the tailwind on on utilization 
But at the same time, we're, we're also seeing kind of weaker survey results in, in terms of the commercial loan demand. And again, coming back from these industry conferences uh, kind of halfway through February, it does sound like there's a little bit more wariness on the part of the commercial borrower, not necessarily due to any fundamental financial erosion, which I think is, is super important here, but really as, as that sort of economic outlook proxy for uncertainty. You know, I, I, I would leave us on, on the commercial borrower side with, with a paraphrasing a quote from the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, who basically said, you know, on the commercial side, especially for the small and middle market borrower, they're never going to say it out loud, but that they're financially actually doing quite well and margins have held in a lot better than expected. So, you know, I, maybe a little bit of a discrepancy between narratives and what we're seeing and hearing in public versus the actual financial condition of these commercial counterparties. Definitely. And so taking all of that, you kind of mentioned some of the uncertainty around the economic outlook, but some of the strength we've seen on the consumer side, balancing that with, I guess, some mixed signals on the commercial side. What's your sector recommendation for the financials and banks coming into 2023 and why, you know, what's the key driver of why you're positioned that way? Yeah, so so we're outperform. Uh, we segment between the large banks, uh, realistically the big six, and then sort of the rest of the universe, including the regional banks. And and we are we were strongly bullish on the large banks entering this year. I would say you know it's been a while since I've seen actual credit risk expressed in large bank spreads. It is very much a technical driven market, and that's especially true now because we've had pretty much a three year run of record supply that's really really been an overhang on spreads, especially last year. So so the recommendation, I, I just want to be clear here, that outperform recommendation, I mean, we we are very constructive on fundamentals, don't get me wrong, but the recommendation is really more tied to those technical factors that are driving spread performance. And so from the large bank's perspective, that outperform view is is really underpinned by our expectations for a sharp decline in supply in 2023. We were out there with an initial forecast calling for about a 35-40% decline. Uh, January was down 70% year over year. Tracking through February is down about 85%. So, so far, so good on, on the supply call. But that really does underpin the rec view. It's much less about fundamentals. Although, again, just to really pound the table, we are quite positive on the fundamentals of the banking system writ large. Well, I'd say the move and spread certainly reflects a strong market and it's been a good call so far. And so when you think about things that have unfolded the way you've expected so far on, on the technical side. And I'd say it's, it's been a pretty hot market across the board, at least in January, things have started to reverse a little bit in February. What would you need to see to change your recommendation, whether it be economic catalysts or changes in the technical environment? Yeah, so so putting aside valuation, which obviously is is extremely important, and I would say that valuation was uh, another factor in our bullish view on the space coming into this year. That you know we did have this this uh, kind of technical uplift baked into our hypothesis on the decline in supply, but also kind of just thinking from a risk symmetry perspective, valuations for the banks were so cheap at the end of 2022 um, that even if we ended up you know wrong on on the supply call. 
the values still looked, you know, very compelling, like given where spreads were. Obviously, we've had, you know, six weeks of massive compression. So, so it's a little different. So uh, away from valuation, I really think, again, because of that technical impetus on the large banks, I think there's two factors that we would be wary of, both of which actually revolve around volatility. So on one hand, if the bank, large bank spreads are going to be kind of whipsawed by supply, the risk is if we get a uh, recurrence of the global volatility that we saw in 2022, and by global, I mean in pretty much every region and every pocket of the market, whether it's commodities or, or FX or interest rates, all of that volatility drives a lot of client demand for activity. That client demand for activity, generally on the capital market side, generally funded with senior unsecured. We think that that was really the sort of the missing catalyst in terms of why we had so much supply in 2022. If you remember, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February. And that's really when we we also started to see a takeoff in terms of, of bank issuance on the way to a record first quarter. So... If something like that happens again, and to be honest with you, I think it's hard for me to see how you get that type of globally synchronized volatility recurring without, you know, somehow another land war in Europe breaking out. So so from that perspective, we think that's supportive of, of the year-over-year decline in supply. Again, if if that reverses, if we do get this renewed volatility, expect client demand to pick back up and expect the banks to absolutely serve into that. And that will come with new issuance. And then the the second one, similarly on the volatility, and something we think about all the time is is sort of market structure with with the investment grade universe. You know, IG outstanding has exploded over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. I think it's doubled in just the past few. And so we're we're the situation where the banks have been constructed strained on being market made partially as a result of post-crisis regulations, and you've had this explosion of paper. And so the end result of it is I really feel quite strongly that that the large banks are one of, if not the sort of source of IG market liquidity. And so what that means is you get periods of a sell-off, you get liquidity concerns, people trying to drum up cash in the face of redemption worries. The banks tend to get hit first and hardest. So almost like a beta of one with the broader market. And so that's another concern that we always sort of have in the back of our head in terms of what we might see in terms of spread blowing out. I, you know, in that situation, I firmly believe that that's always a buying opportunity pretty much for for more patient capital. But unfortunately, that is the reality that when the market sells off, you're generally going to see the banks kind of lurch on a one-to-one basis with that, if not worse, because of that liquidity provider status. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. I, I think coming into this year, we on the strategy side expected volatility to come down a bit as we thought the Fed was a little bit closer to the end of their tightening cycle than it seems in recent remarks. So it does seem like interest rate volatility may remain elevated, but to have the same type of global episode, like you noted with the war in Ukraine, that that certainly seems unlikely. And, and let's hope that's not the case again in 2023. So kind of taking the global backdrop, some of your views on the, the fundamentals and technicals, how do you think clients are positioned in your sector coming into 2023? Do you think your view is broadly shared by the market or do you have more of a contrarian view? I think it's broadly <clears throat> broadly shared by the market especially now. You know, I think I think taking a step back and and painting a picture of this year versus last year, I think at the end of 2021, right? We had not really gone into the Fed hiking cycle yet. Rates were low, spreads were solid, 
and the banks had just come off two consecutive years of just unprecedented supply. You know, again, Putin's saber rattling hadn't quite come to the forefront yet. So I think what happened at the end of 20, excuse me, at the end of 2021 is if you're a portfolio manager and you're looking at and you say, okay, the, the Fed's going to hike next year, credit spreads are, you know, fairly tight, all else equal. So we're probably going to want to shorten up on duration. And then, you know, the banks look fairly attractive here because of that supply overhang. So we think there's going to be, you know, the 30% decline in supply seemed to be the absolute widespread consensus at the end of 21. So technical support from lower supply, plus you wanting to shorten up duration means you go long banks. What happened next? Again, Russia invaded Ukraine. Banks set a brand new record for first quarter issuance volume in 2022 and sort of never looked back and, and spreads remained sort of anchored wider on that supply risk. I think at the end of this year, it was much of the same sentiment, but my belief is that people got burned so badly on on the supply kind of switch from being supportive to being a massive overhang in 2022 that they were less willing to go out of limb and buy this potential you know significant catalyst from a significant decline in supply. But again, you, we only had two banks issue post earnings. Post earnings is is almost always a, a pretty heavy issuance week for the banks. We only had two of them tap. We've had nothing so far in February. So again, if if they continue to sit out for the next week issuance through the first two months of the year is going to be down 85%. So I think that that is maybe enough to get people to actually buy into this year-over-year technical support from from lower supply. But again, you got burned so badly last year. I think there were there were less uh, there was less interest and less appetite to go out on a limb and take that take that long position at the end of 2022. Um, but in terms of where we're sitting here now, I think you look at how spreads com- have compressed and screamed in for the large banks. That that indicates to me that I think more people have sort of bought into that supply technical support and and are back to kind of overweight banks. Definitely. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's been a, a big move to start the year with, with spread narrowing. And so just to hit one more time on the new issue activity and your expectations for supply. So looking for about a 35 to 40 percent decline for the big six. And, they've, you know, it's been a huge three years of supply for financials. How does this year, your expectations for this year stack up to kind of what was a little bit more typical, say, before 2019? Yeah, it, it's it's tough when it comes to the large banks for a few for a few reasons. One is that the issuance volumes that we saw in the sort of post GFC pre pandemic era, there was a lot of it was regulatory driven. So you know, there's a lot of disparity and variance in terms of the issuance levels. I would say from 2016 through 2019, especially you know 2019, I think was the first year where we saw TLAC builds are done, and then you're getting this massive support of spreads because you're done with all these issuance needs. For, for regulatory purposes. And then secondarily is, you know, the the banks, bank balance sheet priced in nominal dollars. You get this type of banking system expansion with Fed QE, with a congressional fiscal stimulus, and the overall size of the balance sheet is just going to be much larger. And so, you know, issuance is not, I, I don't think we can look at issuance necessarily in a purely nominal perspective. If we're going historically, we have to, we have to sort of control for the asset base of the system as a whole, which again, Again, in an ample reserve regime means the Fed has a lot of control over that, not just the commercial banks. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. I, we're certainly keeping an eye on what the Fed's going to do this year with quantitative tightening. It's kind of just chugging along, seemed to have had a, a negative impact on market liquidity. And you are seeing reserves come down, but reverse repo 
remains pretty elevated. So there's some interesting dynamics there, but definitely not the the huge expansion of QE that we saw over the the past couple of years post COVID. And so I guess just to round out the discussion on new issue, has there been any any interesting takeaways from the relatively light issuance we've had so far th- this year? Any interesting deals in particular to note, or has it all been kind of run of the mill and, and reception's been pretty solid given the the light issuance up to up to this point? Well, reception's definitely been solid. I would say the sort of theme is almost handing the baton on issuance. So again, we've only had two of the big six tap the market so far. We have seen a slew of regional banks come to market. We're also seeing the reemergence of bank level entity opco paper which is something that we highlighted as as a trend that we expected to pick up in 2023 uh partially as you mentioned deposits flowing out of the system drives incremental need for for liquidity and funding and they're going to be tapping that the opco sources um in addition to that regional bank issuance, there's also this regulatory-driven need as the Fed works to what looks like finalize a re- so-called regional bank TLAC requirement for, for the largest regionals like U.S. Bank Corp or PNC. Uh, it's been a pretty hot topic, I would say, over the past six or nine months. There's you know implications for significant amounts of new supply. And again, we saw how that hurt the large banks when they were, when they were building for their own TLAC needs in the mid-2010s. We have kind of been saying that we're not particularly concerned about the regulation for regional bank TLAC uh, for several reasons, one of which is it'll, you know, whenever the rules are finalized and end requirements are going to be a multi-year phase in. But then secondarily, our view has been that, you know, these banks are very highly rated. These are, you know, A, if not double or low double A at the OPCO level rated banks, very solid. They don't have the sort of market risk, capital markets risk like like the large banks and they're they're fairly short duration. There's very little liquidity in general in, in these types of issuances. And so our view has been that even if these banks have to issue a bunch more for regulatory purposes, that there's so much demand for this type of bank paper, especially if you think about potential concentration issues between the big six, which again, just got off, you know, three years of record issuance versus the regional banks, which, which in many cases have actually shrunk their debt footprints, that there's just so much demand to get your hands on high quality bank paper that it's not going to have an over impact on spreads, even with this regulatory driven issuance. And I think that's exactly what we've seen, to be honest, in terms of execution on the new issuance side from those large regional banks. So so I thought that was something that was interesting and, and seems to be supporting our view. Um, and our view basically then is we would not, you know, short these these large regional banks on a supply overhang again because of that strong demand support. Awesome. That's definitely some great perspective on kind of an emerging dynamic there with the the regulatory driven side of things. And so I think Everything has been pretty positive so far with with our discussion. Are there any things that keep you up at night when you're thinking about your sector and and your generally positive outlook for 2023? Always. Um always I, I think, you know, from from the banking sector perspective and and analyzing the risks there, it's it's always a lesson in trying to identify the sort of immediate risks and then because it's banks, it's always about the second and third order derivatives. So I think from sort of the obvious first order magnitude risks, we don't really see much. You know, this was a view that we held when COVID first uh, crashed on our shores in March, basically that the banks are just not going to be in the risk vanguard this time around. They're not going to blow themselves up a la the GFC. Um, I, I think actually 
we did a podcast in March of 2020. And I think the title was This Time is Different from the bank's perspective. But that being said, again, it's that second and third order derivative impact. So so I think from, from the balance sheet perspective right now, I mentioned consumer credit at the beginning of the of the of the episode. I think that's another one that that we're watching. Again, I, I don't think it's it's necessarily that concerning other than the kind of triple B tier consumer lenders where they don't have the diversification offset benefits of, of the larger banks. So I think that will continue to drive a drive performance among that group. And then the other one on the balance sheet perspective is the non-bank financial exposure. So so this is a portfolio that has grown quite a bit over the past 10, 15 years. Um, unfortunately, there's very little disclosure around what's in it. And, and as you can imagine, non-bank financial is, is a pretty wide encompassing in, in terms of exposure types and counterparty types. Some of it, I think, is going to be you know completely fine and, and justified by market structure. So for example, I'm thinking about how Mortgage lending has kind of moved so much into the non-bank space with players like Rocket and, you know, banks kind of serving into a prime conforming mortgage originator that's technically an NBFI. I wouldn't have really concerns about that, but it's more generally, you know, where's your risk exposure? Private equity is getting some write-ups now. Private credit potentially, you know, is there any hedge fund exposure? So I think that's one that we're, that we're definitely watching, especially because Everything we can see in the banking system is is fairly solid, but we do know that shadow banking has risen and, and a lot of these financial services uh, components, especially on the lending side, have moved into the quote unquote shadow banking realm. And so it's that non-bank financial loan book that we see as the most obvious risk transmission mechanism from all that activity that got pushed into private markets actually kind of filtering through on the bank side. So that's something that we're watching. Again, it, it's really difficult to get a handle on because of the lack of granularity about what's actually in that book. But that's certainly something we're watching. And then the other one, and again, this falls into the realm of, you know, banks at the end of the day, there's always going to be a little bit of a leap of faith component to it, just given the, the disclosure issues. But counterparty credit is another one that, that we're sort of paying attention to. And, and this first really kind of came to the forefront of our mind in the wake of that post-Russia invasion of Ukraine volatility. Um, you know, I think the JP Morgan nickel short is actually a perfect example of that, where, you know, the, the counterparty had right-way risk on the derivative. So, you know, I think JP Morgan was doing the right things there, but you just get these massive moves in the underlying and all of a sudden, it, that counterparty really comes to the forefront. Um, I, we do take a good deal of comfort in post-crisis regulations around that counterparty credit risk, especially the, the single counterparty limit. But it's something that, that we're also thinking about as a way for risk to percolate into the banking system. Again, not necessarily due to risk management failures, but really kind of reflecting the oddity of the moment and, and these kind of unprecedented market movements that we saw. On the, on the positive side of things, we had these major, major moves in 2022. And, you know, to paraphrase Buffett, I, I don't think anyone got caught out swimming naked. Everyone ended the year with their, with their swim trunks firmly still on. So from that perspective, I think you can, you can get a little bit of comfort that, you know, they're, they're pretty solid on the counterparty credit side because if there were glaring weaknesses and glaring problems, I would have thought that 2022 is when they would have surfaced not necessarily this this environment, which, like you say, interest rates might continue to be volatile. In fact, they'll probably will. But it's hard to see such a global, concerted, synchronized volatility across you know pretty much everything. Yeah, definitely hard to imagine that being replicated. And so, 
kind of identifying that maybe nothing in, in the immediate term, but for the banks, there's always the, the second and third order to consider shifting gears a little bit. Are there any specific issuers that you're concerned about or maybe have a contrarian view on that you'd want to highlight here? Not concerned about, I would say, fundamentally, but it's the those consumer lenders are really going to be in the spotlight here. We saw Ally get hammered at the end of 2022. The market seemed just completely axed against autos almost indiscriminately. Synchrony and Discover are, are other ones with that consumer credit exposure in that in that kind of mid triple B. I mean, we 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 put out a long spotlight piece on Ally making the case for why we're comfortable with exposure. And you have seen the name rally quite a bit to start this year. I know that surprise positive Mannheim print probably helped quite a bit, but that's that's the area where we expect, you know, spread volatility to remain elevated as long as, you know, sort of macro outlook volatility remains elevated. Again, we we are comfortable with the exposures, but we do think that that sentiment is, you know, whipsawed over the past three to six months. And especially with this backup over the past couple of weeks as the markets digest potentially higher higher for longer or continued rate hikes, I think that sentiment is is really sensitive right now and could easily flip right back. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And it was definitely a great call on Ally, but kind of sticking with a theme that's come up, there's, there's still plenty of un uncertainty in the market right now from a broader economic growth perspective as you know you have central banks still tightening pretty pretty considerably and so is there is there any either event or earnings risk that that you're concerned about going forward i think perhaps the event risk is is not so much of a, a concern but anything in earnings outside of you know these global economic concerns and obviously we have higher rates which is is generally a good thing but a, a very flat curve which is is certainly not ideal how are you kind of thinking about earnings risk from here? Yeah, you know, the, the curve shape is an interesting one because I, I remember when I was coming up that that's always what I was trained, right? That banks want the steeper curve. And I think in actuality, all else equal, it's the nominal level, especially on the short end, that matters a lot more than, than the shape of the curve. And so Fed keeps hiking, short end keeps rising. That, that should be incremental margin benefit for the banks. Um, and part of that is also just loan mix that, you know, a large portion of these books now are kind of shorter dated and, and floating rate compared to, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you had a bunch of 30 year fixed rate mortgages on there. So, so on the, on the earning side, it's interest rates definitely help. It's all push and takes. And I think this is actually part of why we have liked the money center banks, both certainly from a valuation perspective, but also from a fundamental perspective that you know, this we're, we're sort of seeing the benefits of diversification come through in terms of earnings. So interest rates go up. That's good for margins. The volatility is bad for issuance activities. So your M&A and your advisory and investment banking revenues come down. But that volatility is also good for trading results. So you get to have bang up trading, uh, trading revenues, which help offset fee income pressures on mortgage banking, right? Because home production, mortgage production is going to fall off a cliff with interest rates and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think big picture, fully, fully expect the banks to remain solidly profitable this year, but the sort of directionality and magnitude of, you know, ROTCEs, for example, it, it's going to be largely dependent on those macro input variables. But the, but the sort of business models of the banks, and again, specifically those money center diversified, you know, they're they make money in all sorts of different environments in different ways. And there's sort of an implicit sort of hedging in terms of that revenue risk. Uh, because again, on, on one side, volatility, bad for investment banking. 
on the other side, good for trading. So there's this natural offset. So I, I think all, th all, all else equal, especially with the interest rate component, we expect profitability to remain strong this year. And again, any variance is, is almost certainly going to be driven by whatever happens on the rate front and then also what happens on the macro front and specifically thinking there on, on something like loan growth and what that does to balance sheet earnings. Great. So I know you like the money centers and the macro or the rate environment benefits them, but more broadly, what's your top pick, top, top pan, best carry trade to start the year? either specific names or kind of talking about across peer groups and, and asset classes. Yeah. So, you know, our call from the beginning of the year, probably the best value we saw across the space, across the capital structure was in a senior whole co money center banks. So that's B of A, that's JP Morgan. B of A was, was our top pick, both for kind of carry pickup over JP, plus the ability to ride the technical support from lower supply. I think that's still the case. I, the reality is I think you're, you know, a lot of the upside has actually already run in, which is really just more of a reflection of both how cheap spreads were at the end of 2022. And then the speed and the magnitude of the compression we've seen year to date. But I think as we stand here, we still think the money center offered good historical spread value, less capital appreciation upside after the compression we've seen, but, but still pretty solid value overall. And we still like B of A from that perspective. I think big picture in the capital structure, we remain sort of wary of sub debt. You know, we are starting to see a pickup in terms of issuance and I will say primary markets seem fairly attractive. We, we kind of have a standing buy order. If a sub note comes, call it, you know, 1.25 or wider relative to senior. But again, the, the secondary trading for a lot of these legacy securities are still just really, really tight and don't offer a ton of value. But we, we like the idea of kind of keeping a little dry powder available to be able to take advantage of the primary market opportunities as this sub date issuance wave uh, continues to build this year and, and over the next couple of years. And then on, on the preferred side, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. We continue to see sort of the best risk reward in playing sort of low coupon fixed rate reset preferreds. So you're, you're getting the benefit of rolling down the duration curve to your reset date and your upside is not all contingent on interest rates. Basically, you know, if you, if you think about the performance of the preferred space year to date, the best performance has come from long duration fixed for life preferreds. Um, of course, it's a direct reflection of how bad they got hit on price last year. And we would argue they actually didn't get hit enough on price last year. Um, so again, that that's always going to be where the outsized outperformance comes from is on the rate call. But in terms of that preferred positioning within the space, if you're trying to anesthetize the rate uncertainty, we we still think that that those low rate, but you still get a reset in the next couple of years, preferred probably offer the, that best downside protection. Awesome. Well, this has been great catching up with you, Jesse. I always find our conversations to be extremely helpful. So thank you, Jesse Rosenthal, our head of U.S. Financials Research, with being with us today. And I'm Zach Griffiths, our U.S. Investment Grade Strategist at Credit Sites. Thank you all for joining us, and we will catch you next time. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. 
receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates.